Chapter Four, Part Three of *The Stones of Venice*, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. *The Stones of Venice*, Volume Two, by John Ruskin. Chapter Four, Saint Mark's, Part Three. Law One that the plinths and cornices used for binding the armour are to be light and delicate. A certain thickness, at least two or three inches, must be required in the covering pieces, even when composed of the strongest stone, and set on the least exposed parts, in order to prevent the chance of fracture and to allow for the wear of time. And the weight of this armour must not be trusted to cement, the pieces must not be merely glued to the rough brick surface but connected with the mass which they protect by binding cornices and string courses and with each other so as to secure mutual support aided by the rivetings but by no means dependent upon them and for the full honesty and straightforwardness of the work it is necessary that these string courses and binding plinths should not be of such proportions as would fit them for taking any important part in the hard work of the inner structure or render them liable to be mistaken for the great cornices and plinths already explained as essential parts of the best solid building they must be delicate slight and visibly incapable of severer work than that assigned to them law two science of inner structure is to be abandoned as the body of the structure is confessedly of inferior and comparatively incoherent materials it would be absurd to attempt in it any expression of the higher refinements of construction it will be enough that by its mass we are assured of its sufficiency and strength and there is the less reason for endeavouring to diminish the extent of its surface by delicacy of adjustment because on the breadth of that surface we are to depend for the better display of the colour which is to be the chief source of our pleasure in the building the main body of the work therefore will be composed of solid walls and massive piers and whatever expression of finer structural science we may require will be thrown either into subordinate portions of it or entirely directed to the support of the external mail where in arches or vaults it might otherwise appear dangerously independent of the material within law three all shafts are to be solid wherever by the smallness of the parts we may be driven to abandon the encrusted structure at all it must be abandoned altogether the eye must never be left in the least doubt as to what is solid and what is coated whatever appears probably solid must be assuredly so and therefore it becomes an inviolable law that no shaft shall ever be encrusted not only does the whole virtue of a shaft depend on its consolidation but the labour of cutting and adjusting an encrusted coat to it would be greater than the saving of material is worth therefore the shaft of whatever size is always to be solid and because the encrusted character of the rest of the building renders it more difficult for the shafts to clear themselves from suspicion they must not in this encrusted style be in any place jointed no shaft must ever be used but of one block and this the more because the permission given to the builder to have his walls and piers as ponderous as he likes renders it quite unnecessary for him to use shafts of any fixed size in our norman and gothic where definite support is required at a definite point it becomes lawful to build up a tower of small stones in the shape of a shaft 
but the byzantine is allowed to have as much support as he wants from the walls in every direction and he has no right to ask for further license in the structure of his shafts let him by generosity in the substance of his pillars repay us for the permission we have given him to be superficial in his walls the builder in the chalk valleys of france and england may be blameless in kneading his clumsy pier out of broken flint and calcined lime but the venetian who has access to the riches of asia and the quarries of egypt must frame at least his shafts out of flawless stone and this for another reason yet although as we have said it is impossible to cover the walls of a large building with colour except on the condition of dividing the stone into plates there is always a certain appearance of meanness and niggardliness in the procedure it is necessary that the builder should justify himself from this suspicion and prove that it is not in mere economy or poverty but in the real impossibility of doing otherwise that he has sheeted his walls so thinly with the precious film now the shaft is exactly the portion of the edifice in which it is fittest to recover his honour in this respect for if blocks of jasper or porphyry be inserted in the walls the spectator cannot tell their thickness and cannot judge of the costliness of the sacrifice but the shaft he can measure with his eye in an instant and estimate the quantity of treasure both in the mass of its existing substance and in that which has been hewn away to bring it into its perfect and symmetrical form and thus the shafts of all buildings of this kind are justly regarded as an expression of their wealth and a form of treasure just as much as the jewels or gold in the sacred vessels they are in fact nothing else than large jewels the block of precious serpentine or jasper being valued according to its size and brilliancy of colour like a large emerald or ruby only the bulk required to bestow value on the one is to be measured in feet and tons and on the other in lines and carats the shafts must therefore be without exception of one block in all buildings of this kind for the attempt in any place to encrust or joint them would be a deception like that of introducing a false stone among jewellery for a number of joints of any precious stone are of course not equal in value to a single piece of equal weight and would put an end at once to the spectator's confidence in the expression of wealth in any portion of the structure or of the spirit of sacrifice in those who raised it law four the shafts may sometimes be independent of the construction exactly in proportion to the importance which the shaft assumes as a large jewel is the diminution of its importance as a sustaining member for the delight which we receive in its abstract bulk and beauty of colour is altogether independent of any perception of its adaptation to mechanical necessities like other beautiful things in this world its end is to be beautiful and in proportion to its beauty it receives permission to be otherwise useless we do not blame emeralds and rubies because we cannot make them into heads of hammers nay so far from our admiration of the jewel shaft being dependent on its doing work for us it is very possible that a chief part of its preciousness may consist in a delicacy fragility and tenderness of material which must render it utterly unfit for hard work and therefore that we shall admire it the more because we perceive that if we were to put much weight upon it it would be crushed but at all events it is very clear that the primal object in the placing of such shafts must be the display of their beauty to the best advantage and that therefore all embedding of them in walls or crowding of them into groups in any position in which either their real size or any portion of their surface would be concealed 
is either inadmissible altogether or objectionable in proportion to their value that no symmetrical or scientific arrangements of pillars are therefore ever to be expected in buildings of this kind and that all such are even to be looked upon as positive errors and misapplications of materials but that on the contrary we must be constantly prepared to see and to see with admiration shafts of great size and importance set in places where their real service is little more than nominal and where the chief end of their existence is to catch the sunshine upon their polished sides and lead the eye into delighted wandering among the mazes of their azure veins law five the shafts may be of variable size since the value of each shaft depends upon its bulk and diminishes with the diminution of its mass in a greater ratio than the size itself diminishes as in the case of all other jewellery it is evident that we must not in general expect perfect symmetry and equality among the series of shafts any more than definiteness of application but that on the contrary an accurately observed symmetry ought to give us a kind of pain as proving that considerable and useless loss has been sustained by some of the shafts in being cut down to match with the rest it is true that symmetry is generally sought for in works of smaller jewellery but even there not a perfect symmetry and obtained under circumstances quite different from those which affect the placing of shafts in architecture first the symmetry is usually imperfect the stones that seem to match each other in a ring or necklace appear to do so only because they are so small that their differences are not easily measured by the eye but there is almost always such difference between them as would be strikingly apparent if it existed in the same proportion between two shafts nine or ten feet in height secondly the quantity of stones which pass through a jeweller's hands and the facility of exchange of such small objects enable the tradesman to select any number of stones of approximate size a selection however often requiring so much time that perfect symmetry in a group of very fine stones adds enormously to their value but the architect has neither the time nor the facilities of exchange he cannot lay aside one column in a corner of his church till in the course of traffic he obtain another that will match it he has not hundreds of shafts fastened up in bundles out of which he can match sizes at his ease he cannot send to a brother tradesman and exchange the useless stones for available ones to the convenience of both his blocks of stone or his ready-hewn shafts have been brought to him in limited number from immense distances no others are to be had and for those which he does not bring into use there is no demand elsewhere his only means of obtaining symmetry will therefore be in cutting down the finer masses to equality with the inferior ones and this we ought not to desire him often to do and therefore while sometimes in a baldacchino or an important chapel or shrine this costly symmetry may be necessary and admirable in proportion to its probable cost in the general fabric we must expect to see shafts introduced of size and proportion continually varying and such symmetry as may be obtained among them never altogether perfect and dependent for its charm frequently on strange complexities and unexpected rising and falling of weight and accent in its marble syllables bearing the same relation to a rigidly chiselled and proportioned architecture that the wild lyric rhythm of aeschylus or pindar bears to the finished measures of pope the application of the principles of jewellery to the smaller as well as the larger blocks will suggest to us another reason for the method of incrustation adopted in the walls 
it often happens that the beauty of the veining in some varieties of alabaster is so great that it becomes desirable to exhibit it by dividing the stone not merely to economize its substance but to display the changes in the disposition of its fantastic lines by reversing one of two thin plates successively taken from the stone and placing their corresponding edges in contact a perfectly symmetrical figure may be obtained which will enable the eye to comprehend more thoroughly the position of the veins and this is actually the method in which for the most part the alabasters of st mark are employed thus accomplishing a double good directing the spectator in the first place to close observation of the nature of the stone employed and in the second giving him a farther proof of the honesty of intention in the builder for wherever similar veining is discovered in two pieces the fact is declared that they have been cut from the same stone it would have been easy to disguise the similarity by using them in different parts of the building but on the contrary they are set edge to edge so that the whole system of the architecture may be discovered at a glance by any one acquainted with the nature of the stones employed nay but it is perhaps answered me not by an ordinary observer a person ignorant of the nature of alabaster might perhaps fancy all these symmetrical patterns to have been found in the stone itself and thus be doubly deceived supposing blocks to be solid and symmetrical which were in reality subdivided and irregular i grant it but be it remembered that in all things ignorance is liable to be deceived and has no right to accuse anything but itself as the source of the deception the style and the words are dishonest not which are liable to be misunderstood if subjected to no inquiry but which are deliberately calculated to lead inquiry astray there are perhaps no great or noble truths from those of religion downwards which present no mistakable aspect to casual or ignorant contemplation both the truth and the lie agree in hiding themselves at first but the lie continues to hide itself with effort as we approach to examine it and leads us if undiscovered into deeper lies the truth reveals itself in proportion to our patience and knowledge discovers itself kindly to our pleading and leads us as it is discovered into deeper truths law six the decoration must be shallow in cutting the method of construction being thus systematized it is evident that a certain style of decoration must arise out of it based on the primal condition that over the greater part of the edifice there can be no deep cutting the thin sheets of covering stones do not admit of it we must not cut them through to the bricks and whatever ornaments we engrave upon them cannot therefore be more than an inch deep at the utmost consider for an instant the enormous differences which this single condition compels between the sculptural decoration of the encrusted style and that of the solid stones of the north which may be hacked and hewn into whatever cavernous hollows and black recesses we choose struck into grim darknesses and grotesque projections and rugged ploughings up of sinuous furrows in which any form or thought may be wrought out on any scale mighty statues with robes of rock and crowned foreheads burning in the sun or venomous goblins and stealthy dragons shrunk into lurking places of untraceable shade think of this and of the play and freedom given to the sculptor's hand and temper to smite out and in hither and thither as he will and then consider what must be the different spirit of the design which is to be wrought on the smooth surface of a film of marble 
where every line and shadow must be drawn with the most tender pencilling and cautious reserve of resource where even the chisel must not strike hard lest it break through the delicate stone nor the mind be permitted in any impetuosity of conception inconsistent with the fine discipline of the hand consider that whatever animal or human form is to be suggested must be projected on a flat surface that all the features of the countenance the folds of the drapery the involutions of the limbs must be so reduced and subdued that the whole work becomes rather a piece of fine drawing than of sculpture and then follow out until you begin to perceive their endlessness the resulting differences of character which will be necessitated in every part of the ornamental designs of these encrusted churches as compared with that of the northern schools i shall endeavour to trace a few of them only the first would of course be a diminution of the builder's dependence upon human form as a source of ornament since exactly in proportion to the dignity of the form itself is the loss which it must sustain in being reduced to a shallow and linear bas-relief as well as the difficulty of expressing it at all under such conditions wherever sculpture can be solid the nobler characters of the human form at once lead the artist to aim at its representation rather than at that of inferior organisms but when all is to be reduced to outline the forms of flowers and lower animals are always more intelligible and are felt to approach much more to a satisfactory rendering of the objects intended than the outlines of the human body this inducement to seek for resources of ornament in the lower fields of creation was powerless in the minds of the great pagan nations ninevite greek or egyptian first because their thoughts were so concentrated on their own capacities and fates that they preferred the rudest suggestion of human form to the best of an inferior organism secondly because their constant practice in solid sculpture often colossal enabled them to bring a vast amount of science into the treatment of the lines whether of the low relief the monochrome vase or shallow hieroglyphic but when various ideas adverse to the representation of animal and especially of human form originating with the arabs and iconoclast greeks had begun at any rate to direct the builders minds to seek for decorative materials in inferior types and when diminished practice in solid sculpture had rendered it more difficult to find artists capable of satisfactorily reducing the high organisms to their elementary outlines the choice of subject for surface sculpture would be more and more uninterruptedly directed to floral organisms and human and animal form would become diminished in size frequency and general importance so that while in the northern solid architecture we constantly find the effect of its noblest features dependent on ranges of statues often colossal and full of abstract interest independent of their architectural service in the southern encrusted style we must expect to find the human form for the most part subordinate and diminutive and involved among designs of foliage and flowers in the manner of which endless examples had been furnished by the fantastic ornamentation of the romans from which the encrusted style had been directly derived farther in proportion to the degree in which his subject must be reduced to abstract outline will be the tendency in the sculptor to abandon naturalism of representation and subordinate every form to architectural service where the flower or animal can be hewn into bold relief there will always be a temptation to render the representation of it more complete than is necessary or even to introduce details and intricacies inconsistent with simplicity of distant effect very often a worse fault than this is committed 
and in the endeavour to give vitality to the stone the original ornamental purpose of the design is sacrificed or forgotten but when nothing of this kind can be attempted and a slight outline is all that the sculptor can command we may anticipate that this outline will be composed with exquisite grace and that the richness of its ornamental arrangement will atone for the feebleness of its power of portraiture on the porch of a northern cathedral we may seek for the images of the flowers that grow in the neighbouring fields and as we watch with wonder the grey stones that fret themselves into thorns and soften into blossoms we may care little that these knots of ornament as we retire from them to contemplate the whole building appear unconsidered or confused on the encrusted building we must expect no such deception of the eye or thoughts it may sometimes be difficult to determine from the involutions of its linear sculpture what were the natural forms which originally suggested them but we may confidently expect that the grace of their arrangement will always be complete that there will not be a line in them which could be taken away without injury nor one wanting which could be added with advantage farther while the sculptures of the encrusted school will thus be generally distinguished by care and purity rather than force and will be for the most part utterly wanting in depth of shadow there will be one means of obtaining darkness peculiarly simple and obvious and often in the sculptor's power wherever he can without danger leave a hollow behind his covering slabs or use them like glass to fill an aperture in the wall he can by piercing them with holes obtain points or spaces of intense blackness to contrast with the light tracing of the rest of his design and we may expect to find this artifice used the more extensively because while it will be an effective means of ornamentation on the exterior of the building it will be also the safest way of admitting light to the interior still totally excluding both rain and wind and it will naturally follow that the architect thus familiarized with the effect of black and sudden points of shadow will often seek to carry the same principle into other portions of his ornamentation and by deep drill holes or perhaps inlaid portions of black colour to refresh the eye where it may be wearied by the lightness of the general handling farther exactly in proportion to the degree in which the force of sculpture is subdued will be the importance attached to colour as a means of effect or constituent of beauty i have above stated that the encrusted style was the only one in which perfect or permanent colour decoration was possible it is also the only one in which a true system of colour decoration was ever likely to be invented in order to understand this the reader must permit me to review with some care the nature of the principles of colouring adopted by the northern and southern nations i believe that from the beginning of the world there has never been a true or fine school of art in which colour was despised it has often been imperfectly attained and injudiciously applied but i believe it to be one of the essential signs of life in a school of art that it loves colour and i know it to be one of the first signs of death in the renaissance schools that they despised colour observe it is not now the question whether our northern cathedrals are better with colour or without perhaps the great monotone grey of nature and of time is a better colour than any that the human hand can give but that is nothing to our present business the simple fact is that the builders of those cathedrals laid upon them the brightest colours they could obtain 
and that there is not as far as i am aware in europe any monument of a truly noble school which has not been either painted all over or vigorously touched with paint mosaic and gilding in its prominent parts thus far egyptians greeks goths arabs and medieval christians all agree none of them when in their right senses ever think of doing without paint and therefore when i said above that the venetians were the only people who had thoroughly sympathized with the arabs in this respect i referred first to their intense love of colour which led them to lavish the most expensive decorations on ordinary dwelling-houses and secondly to that perfection of the colour instinct in them which enabled them to render whatever they did in this kind as just in principle as it was gorgeous in appliance it is this principle of theirs as distinguished from that of the northern builders which we have finally to examine in the second chapter of the first volume it was noticed that the architect of bourges cathedral liked hawthorn and that the porch of his cathedral was therefore decorated with a rich wreath of it but another of the predilections of that architect was there unnoticed namely that he did not at all like grey hawthorn but preferred it green and he painted it green accordingly as bright as he could the colour is still left in every sheltered interstice of the foliage he had in fact hardly the choice of any other colour he might have gilded the thorns by way of allegorising human life but if they were to be painted at all they could hardly be painted anything but green and green all over people would have been apt to object to any pursuit of abstract harmonies of colour which might have induced him to paint his hawthorn blue in the same way whenever the subject of the sculpture was definite its colour was of necessity definite also and in the hands of the northern builders it often became in consequence rather the means of explaining and animating the stories of their stonework rather than a matter of abstract decorative science flowers were painted red trees green and faces flesh colour the result of the whole being often far more entertaining than beautiful and also though in the lines of the mouldings and the decorations of shafts or vaults a richer and more abstract method of colouring was adopted aided by the rapid development of the best principles of colour in early glass painting the vigorous depths of shadow in the northern sculpture confused the architect's eye compelling him to use violent colours in the recesses if these were to be seen as colour at all and thus injured his perception of more delicate colour harmonies so that in innumerable instances it becomes very disputable whether monuments even of the best times were improved by the colour bestowed upon them or the contrary but in the south the flatness and comparatively vague forms of the sculpture while they appeared to call for colour in order to enhance their interest presented exactly the conditions which would set it off to the greatest advantage breadth of surface displaying even the most delicate tints in the lights and faintness of shadow joining with the most delicate and pearly greys of colour harmony while the subject of the design being in nearly all cases reduced to mere intricacy of ornamental line might be coloured in any way the architect chose without any loss of rationality where oak leaves and roses were carved into fresh relief and perfect bloom it was necessary to paint the one green and the other red but in portions of ornamentation where there was nothing which could be definitely construed into either an oak-leaf or a rose but a mere labyrinth of beautiful lines becoming here something like a leaf and there something like a flower the whole tracery of the sculpture might be left white and grounded with gold or blue or treated in any other manner best harmonizing with the colours around it 
and as the necessary feeble character of the sculpture called for and was ready to display the best arrangements of colour so the precious marbles in the architect's hands give him at once the best examples and the best means of colour the best examples for the tints of all natural stones are as exquisite in quality as endless in change and the best means for they are all permanent every motive thus concurred in urging him to the study of chromatic decoration and every advantage was given him in the pursuit of it and this at the very moment when as presently to be noticed the naivete of barbaric christianity could only be forcibly appealed to by the help of coloured pictures so that both externally and internally the architectural construction became partly merged in pictorial effect and the whole edifice is to be regarded less as a temple wherein to pray than as itself a book of common prayer a vast illuminated missal bound with alabaster instead of parchment studded with porphyry pillars instead of jewels and written within and without in letters of enamel and gold End of chapter 4, part 3